We refer to the prayer that we are speaking of today. Our Father which art in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. We refer to this uh, as the Lord's prayer. But it is more accurately your prayer and my prayer. It's not the Lord's prayer in that, in that he is the possessor of it, but it was given to us by the Lord. In fact, Jesus said to his disciples, this then is how you should pray. Now, we're, I'm sure that Jesus incorporated many aspects of this prayer, but, but we think of the phrase, forgive us our debts. That is something that I have to pray. That's saying, forgive me of my sins. That's something that I have to pray and I'm sure many of you have to pray on a regular basis and a consistent basis. But this was a prayer that Jesus never had to pray. He never had to ask for the forgiveness of sins as he was without sin. So it is really your prayer. It's, it's my prayer. It's a prayer that God wanted us to be engaged with and, and to understand and that Jesus desired for us to understand at a broader level than just simply knowing it by memory. It is interesting that, that this prayer in the Matean context in which Matthew taught it is not actually taught within the context of being a public or a corporate prayer. It's interesting that, that those of us that know this prayer by, by memory, most of us know it because we grew up praying it in very public or corporate settings. We grew up hearing it around us and we would pray through it and as kids, we would pray through it very quickly. How fast can you say the Lord's Prayer? But Jesus introduced this sermon actually by critiquing the corporate praying of the Pharisees. Verse 5 there in Matthew chapter 6. This is the preamble as the introduction into the Lord's Prayer. And when you pray, you must not be like the hypocrites, for they love to stand and pray in the synagogues and at the street corners that they may be seen by others. Now, I don't want to label public uh, recitations of this prayer as, as sinful. That's not what I'm saying. But, but, but it is interesting that, that the majority of us pray this prayer primarily only in a public setting. Yet Jesus was teaching it to be the, the format, the context of this was, was in, the, in the setting of private prayer. In fact, by making this primarily about a liturgical act within a worship service, we've done in some cases, in some cases we've potentially done the very thing that Jesus was warning us against. Don't pray this prayer as show or, or, or for, to be seen by others. Verse 6 actually says, but when you pray, Jesus said, go into your room and shut the door and pray to your Father who is in secret. The, the model of this prayer, the platform of this prayer is, is, is in the context of our, of our private personal prayers that we pray between us and God. The Lord's Prayer is also often prayed from, from rote, from memory, without much thought. We can come dangerously close to praying this prayer and simply having this prayer just be a bundle of words. And yet, in the preamble to this prayer, Jesus said this, and when you pray, do not heap up empty phrases. This is verse 7. And when you pray, do not heap up empty phrases as the Gentiles do, for they think they will be heard for their many words. We could be in danger of just having empty words. Uh, one, one commentator said that, that, that Jesus was here instructing them 
to make sure that their minds were engaged as they prayed to God. Ellen White wrote this. She said, the Lord's Prayer was not intended to be repeated merely as a form, but it is an illustration of what our prayer should be. And then she gives three qualifiers. Simple, earnest, and comprehensive. The Lord's Prayer was to set a model of how our prayer should be. Simple, earnest, and comprehensive. And in fact, in the book Child Guidance, she says that this should be the model prayer for parents so that parents uh, uh, do not belabor prayer in front of their kids and make uh, the prayer time and the prayer experience before their kids a laborious thing, but, but make sure your prayers before your kids are, are simple, earnest, and comprehensive. This is the setup for the Lord's Prayer. This is the preamble into the Lord's Prayer. It is really our prayer given to us by Jesus. The Matean version of this prayer is in the context of our private prayer life. It is a prayer that teaches us to make sure that our minds are engaged as we pray. That we're not just hurling out empty words, but we're actually thinking about what we're praying and, and, and mindful of the meaning of our prayers. The prayer then establishes six areas for our minds to be engaged as we pray. But before we go there, I want us to recognize how this prayer begins, and it's appropriate for Father's Day. The prayer begins beautifully in a relational manner. There are so many, uh, there are so many religions that would not dare to call their gods Father. They would not dare to address their, their gods in such an intimate way. In fact, even uh, believers in that day, the Jewish believers, this was too informal to address God as Father. But Jesus begins by saying, pray our Father, we are encouraged by Jesus to address God in this way, in this intimate and, and relational manner. And it's interesting that Jesus calls us to pray this because God is Father, but, but he is so great and so mighty. And, and who am I that God is, is mindful of me? Who am I that, that I have the right to refer to the God of the universe as Father in this term of endearment? And yet that is how Jesus instructs us to pray. Paul wrote in his letter to the Romans, chapter 8, verses 15 and 16, For you do not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have the, received the spirit of adoption as sons and as daughters by whom we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. The Spirit reminds us to cry out, Abba, Father, Jesus tells us in the Lord's Prayer, say, our Father, which are in heaven. He's, he's reminding us. He wants us to enter into this prayer being reminded of the fact that God sees us as his children. He sees us as his children. Now, there are many commentaries that I read that actually said that, that this prayer is, is only for believers because it is a prayer that needs to be prayed with integrity. And you can't pray our Father unless you are in relationship with God. I want to tell you that I disagree with the commentators on that. And I disagree with the commentators because I am a dad. And I know that my kid can slam the door and say, you're not fair. Or I don't like that. And I can be really annoyed. But the moment he comes out and says, hey, dad, can you help me? I'm right there. I'm right there. 
And I'm not better than the God of the universe. I'm not more loving than the God of the universe. And so the God of the universe says, address me as our Father. And the commentators say, this is only for a believer's prayer because it lacks integrity to pray our Father if you're not in relationship with God. But, but I read the Bible and I see a story where Jesus speaks of a hundred sheep and, and those are a hundred children of his and he speaks of the, the 99 being in good company with God and yet there's that one child that has gone away and, and the picture of God that I see is a God that goes out and searches for that one child to draw them back in. And that shepherd God that we have Longs to hear that child say our father. The, the, the scriptures that I read, I read a picture about a God who, who has two sons and one son seems to be perfect in every way. He obeys, he follows all the rules, he doesn't shame the name of God. But there's another son who goes out and makes a mockery of the name of the father. Makes a mockery of the things that the father taught him. And he's off living in all kinds of riotous ways. And, and yet he comes back home and when he's still a long way off the bible tells me and paints a picture of the god that that runs to him and kisses his, him and throws a robe on him he doesn't say to that young man until we're back in relationship i don't want you to address me as father so i read this prayer and this prayer from to me i see a prayer for for all people for all humanity because because god desires us wants us all to know that we are his children and that he loves us Jesus is encouraging us to approach God recognizing his love for us. And we address God as Father. And when we address God as Father, we are also acknowledging our love for him. We're recognizing our love for him, our appreciation for him. Communicating that to God, Father, is, is a term of endearment and it, it communicates some sort of, of relationship value there that, that we desire to have with God. My grandpa Stuart abandoned his family when my dad and his brothers were still teenagers. He came back many years later and it's quite a story, but, but my dad's oldest brother never forgave his father, never forgave his dad, and he communicated this in a very specific way. My grandpa came home and, and, and my dad would refer to him as dad or pops. My uncle Dennis would refer to him as dad or pops. My Uncle Byron would say, hello, Ken, how are you? No dad, no pops, no father, no nothing. He was communicating something by not referring to him in that way. I desire no relationship with you. You are, you are, you are nothing to me. Jesus, we're, we're communicating to God, too, when we speak of him as our father. We're communicating our desire for some sort of relationship with him. Jesus said, pray this, our father, which art in heaven... Jesus wants us to recognize right from the beginning that, that prayer is a conversation based on love, based on relationship. John Stott points out that, that when we have taken time and trouble to orientate ourselves toward God and recollect what manner of God he is, a personal, a loving, a powerful father, then the content of our prayers will radically be affected. When we recognize, when we orientate ourselves, when we begin our prayer, our Father which are in heaven, and we, we recognize the personal, loving, and powerful Father that we have, then the content of our prayers will be radically effective. And then affected. And then Jesus gives us a pattern for the direction in which our minds should be engaged as we pray. 
Remember, to just kneel in church and pray this prayer from rote does not, from rote, goes directly against the desire that Jesus had for giving this instruction. He said, don't be like the pagans. Don't be like the pagans and just say whatever, not thinking about what you're praying, not engaging your minds in what you're praying. The very prayer of Je- that Jesus taught us to, to be fully engaged in, let us admit it, that many of us have prayed it without even thinking about what it means, without even pausing to reflect on what it means. Many of us have heard the person up front close their prayer and say, and now, Lord, as you taught us to pray, our Father, and what do we do? Without even a thought, we just go straight into it. And we just pray through it with, with maybe without even engaging our minds, without even thinking about what we're saying or why we're saying it. And the only place at which we really think about it is in that section right in the middle in which it says, and forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. And we all kind of slow down there and we all kind of mumble there because we know that some people say, and forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those that trespass against us. And we don't want to be off from the speaker. And so we kind of slow down and we just mumble whatever and we, then we pick it back up. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the... And we can go through the whole prayer and not even... Think about what it means. But let us pause in this sermon today and let us pause as we, as we think about the prayer to engage our mind about this prayer. This prayer which serves as a model for, for the principal focus of our prayer is structured actually like two other sections of Scripture. Two other very famous sections of Scripture. First, the Ten Commandments of Exodus 20. It was John Calvin, the reformer, that said, notice how the Lord's Prayer is is structured in a similar manner to the commandments of Exodus chapter 20. The first tablet, we would say, of the commandments deal primarily with the vertical relationship between God and humanity. The second tablet of the commandments, we would say, deal primarily with, with horizontally with our relationship between our fellow man. Another section of Scripture that is a very famous section of Scripture, Jesus spoke of something called the greatest commandment. And he said, and there is a second one like it. Matthew chapter 22, verses 37, 38, and 39. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. This is the first and greatest commandment. And a second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. The first, the commandments of God are structured first, the focus on God, and then the focus on our relationship with our fellow man. The, 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 the great commandments are focused first on, on our love of God and then on our relationship with our fellow man. The Lord's Prayer is actually structured in the same manner. The prayer begins with a focus on the glory of God, God's name, God's kingdom, God's will, and then the focus shifts to the needs of man. Give us this day, or give us this day our daily bread. Forgive us our debts. Deliver us from evil. The Ten Commandments begin with a focus on God. The greatest commandment begins with a focus on God. And the Lord's Prayer begins with a focus on God. When we understand who our Father in heaven is, when we understand how much He loves us and how much He has done for us, then the natural priority, the natural order of things is God first. When we don't understand this about God, when we don't understand about who we are praying to, our Father, the natural order of things is me, 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 and I move on with my day. We pray, our Father which art in heaven, hallowed be your name. 
Hallowed be your name. This is a petition. This is a prayer, a, a request that God's name will be made holy, will be honored in our hearts, in the church, in the world in which we live. We are praying in a sense here for God's reputation. It's not about our name or about, about what people think of us, but it's about what God, what people think of God. Jesus begin, invites us to begin our prayer by praying for people to lift up God's name. Then the petition, the petition shifts to God's kingdom. In this, we are praying for both the literal coming of God's kingdom. Last week, we talked about the soon coming of Jesus. And if you didn't hear that, I encourage you to go online and you can listen to that online. The soon coming of Jesus, of God's literal kingdom, but also, but also that the principles of God's kingdom will grow in the hearts of many through the witness of the church, in our own hearts. And I, I would say in a practical way, Jesus is teaching us to remember before we pray for our own businesses, before we pray for our own success, before we pray for our own uh, homes and establishments, that we pray for the kingdom of God. And then the petition for God's will to be done is a petition that, that each day will be more aligned with doing God's will rather than our own will. Now, when I think about these three petitions, I have to tell you something. All of them, in some sense, seem superfluous. They seem completely unnecessary. Our Father, which art in heaven, I pray that you'll make your name holy. I pray that your kingdom will, will be established. I pray that, that, that your will will be done. Isn't God's name already holy? The Bible tells us that God's name is already holy. Why do I need to ask God to, to make his name holy? God is already king of kings and Lord of lords. He's the king of the universe. And didn't Jesus declare more than 2,000 years ago that, that the kingdom of God is at hand? Why do I now need to pray that God's kingdom will be established? And God is all-powerful, so his good and perfect and pleasing will will ultimately be accomplished. This is what the Bible teaches me, that ultimately God's will will be accomplished. They seem unnecessary. So then why does God, why does Jesus encourage us to pray these petitions? The key here is understanding the overriding purpose of prayer. The overriding purpose of prayer Prayer is not primarily about reminding God of who he is or instructing God of what he needs to do. Martin Luther said, by prayer, we are instructing ourselves. That's the purpose of prayer, to instruct ourselves. Unless we understand that, that this is the case, we'll just pray this without thinking. But, but when I understand that, that the prayer is not primarily about me instructing God, but God instructing me, when I pray for God's name to be made holy and am engaged with that prayer, then I am forced to pause and ask the, myself, am I honoring my Father in heaven as a holy God? Am I rightly representing his name in this world as a holy and loving God? When I pray thy kingdom come, it forces me to ask the question, do I care more about building God's kingdom and God's ways, or am I really working for my own kingdom and my own ways? And when I pray thy will be done, it forces me to analyze in my own heart, 
Does each day of my life represent more and more the will of God, or does it represent more and more the will of self? I don't pray to instruct God, but as I pray these things and my mind is engaged with this prayer, I'm instructed myself. Am I living honorably before a holy God? Am I working to establish God's kingdom? Am I living by God's will day in and day out? The Lord's Prayer, which is really our prayer, does not instruct God. It starts off by instructing us on our right priorities. We begin the prayer by focusing on God and making sure our priorities are right. His holy name, his holy kingdom, his holy will. And then the pronoun in the prayer shifts from our to your, or from your to our, from, from, from God's to our possessive. And I believe the instruction shifts from being reminded of the priorities, the priorities of our life, God's name, God's kingdom, God's will, to be reminded of the assurances that we have through the love of our Father. Jesus said, pray, give us this day our daily bread. Jesus uses the example of bread, but bread represents all the things that are necessary to, to sustain our lives, to, 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 to sustain us physically. It represents our homes, and it represents uh, uh, the weather. It represents the clothes that we wear. It represents the money that we have. Give us this day our daily prayer, our daily bread. This prayer was a reminder of the God who cares for us day in and day out. We didn't. We didn't. We don't. God, Jesus doesn't ask us to pray this prayer because He needs to be reminded to provide for our needs. Jesus, in fact, said. God calls the rain to fall on the just and the unjust. He causes the sun to shine on the just and the unjust. In other words, God is sustaining and God is, is preserving people and doing things for people in this world, whether they know it or not. God does not need to be reminded to provide for our needs. But this prayer reminds us that we can have the assurance that God cares for us, that God is taking care of us. We're reminded of Acts chapter 17 and verse 28, which says, in him we live and move and have our being. But we're also reminded of something else in praying this prayer, and I appreciate Ellen White's commentary on this portion of the prayer. She says, when we pray, this is from the Thoughts from the Mount of Blessings, page 111, when we pray, give us this day our daily bread, we ask for others as well as ourselves. And we acknowledge that what God gives us in abundance is not for ourselves alone. God gives to us in trust that we may feed the hungry. Of his goodness, of his abundance, he has prepared for the poor. I paraphrase her statement in this way. God provides for our daily needs, and if he provides in abundance, that abundance, that goodness, is not so that we can have more, but so that we can be the vessels by which others who are praying the prayer, give us this day our daily bread, their prayers are answered too. So if God gives you enough for this day and God gives you enough for the next day and God gives you enough for the next day and suddenly you realize not only do you have enough for this day and you have enough for the next day and you have enough for the next day, but man, you have more than enough. God wasn't saying, hey, I just like you more than all the rest, so I'm gonna give you a lot more than everyone else. No, what God is saying, I've given you this abundance, this goodness, as Ellen White says, so that you can then use that extra to answer their prayer. Give us this day our daily bread. 
Then we pray after give us this day our daily bread and we're reminded of our dependence upon God for our daily needs and the assurance that God will take care of us. We pray forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. Forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. At the end of the prayer, there's kind of a postlude. The postlude actually isn't for thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory and forever. That's been added on. But, but the postlude is actually for if you forgive others their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others their trespasses, neither will your Father forgive your trespasses. Now we have to be careful with this passage. We don't want to make this a forgiveness by works. Well, I'll be forgiven as long as I forgive that person and that's the way I'm going to earn my salvation. Here's the truth, though. I can't fully accept God's forgiveness that he gave to me. You can't fully accept God's forgiveness that he gave to you at Calvary if we are not able to forgive others. When we have a disdain for others, it's a, it's, it's, it shows an area that we are not fully surrendered to God. It shows an area that we are not fully surrendered to God. I'll share a quick testimony with you. I used to not like people a whole lot. And I don't say that just tongue in cheek. I really actually didn't. I had like my four or five friends. I made a few other friends along the way. But I was pretty happy. And because of this general dislike of people, uh, Christina and I broke up for eight months. We broke up in October uh, and we got back together uh, the following July. And we broke up because Christina was always telling me, be nice, Chad. Be nice. And I thought, stop nagging me. Stop nagging me. But she was right. I wasn't nice. She would say, hey, I want you to meet someone. I'd be like, yeah, I don't want to meet them. Hey, we're going to go out with my friends. Why don't you come? Nah, I, don't, I, don't, I got my friends. I don't need it. I want you to be friends with my friends. No, nah, I got my friends. I'm good. I don't need to meet anybody. I would, I would, I would kind of have this mindset like, yep, yeah, I don't like people. They don't like me. That's all good. We're all good with it. I'm good. They're good. You think I'm a jerk. I think you're a jerk. We're all good together. We're all jerks together, and it's okay. That was kind of my general attitude towards people. Even after I became a Christian, this is the way I was. But I praise God that sanctification is the work of a lifetime. And I went to Africa to serve for a few months in Africa, and something happened in Africa, and I can't even describe what it was. I can't put my finger on it completely, but I can say this. It was a supernatural thing that took place. And I came back from Africa, and Christina said, man, you're different. We were still broken up. And my parents said, man, you're different. And I thought, I don't know, I, I don't know what it is. But I discovered that, that I loved people. I really actually genuinely loved people. God did something. There was some surrender that took place in my heart in Africa to the place where I loved people. And I remember even distinctly a conversation after uh, Christina and I were married, just shortly after we were married. And, and, and she was, we were having a conversation about a person and I kept defending this person over and over again. And she said, why, why are you defending them? They don't even like you. And with total joy, I said, I know, but I really like them. And so I'm sure they have a good reason for not liking me. I was, it was just, blah. And I can honestly say, I, I love all of you. Even those of you that have written me some interesting notes at times. (Laughter) 
that's, I guess, the best way I know how to describe forgiveness. Is, is something happens when we surrender our heart and we accept the forgiveness of God fully, then we're able to love even those that may not love us or that, or that may be difficult to love. And so that's what Jesus is saying here. As we begin to understand, he said, we say forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. And we forgive our debtors because we understand in, in the light of a loving and an almighty and a powerful God, we begin to understand just how much God has forgiven us. Remember, prayer instructs us, not God. We don't have to remind God to forgive us. God, I need your, to you to remember to forgive me if you, if you can do so pretty soon because I've been messing up. No, we are instructed and, and given assurance that God forgives us. And, and, and it reminds us of how greatly we've been forgiven and enables us to forgive others. To forgive others. The last two petitions are actually one in the positive and negative form. Lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. This again, this is again our prayer when our prayer is instructing us and reminds us of the assurances we have that, that God can and will give us strength in the face of moral weaknesses, in the face of moral challenges and moral dilemmas. When we pray this prayer, uh, lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. It's not literally saying that Jesus or God is the one that leads us into temptation. Remember, the Bible says, do not say that I tempt you because God, God does not tempt us. What it's saying is, is keep us from temptations that are, that are more than we can handle. And, and the Bible reminds us that, and assures us as we pray this prayer and our minds are engaged, we're reminded, we're reminded of the power that we have through the power of our loving and personal Father. We're reminded of 2 Corinthians chapter 12 and verse 9 in which, in which uh, Paul wrote, that Jesus said this, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in what? In weakness. We're reminded of 1 Corinthians chapter 10 and verse 13, in which the Bible tells us, no temptation has overtaken you that is not common to man. God is faithful, and he will not let you be tempted beyond your ability, but with the temptation, it will also be provided the way of escape that you may be able to endure it. We're reminded of 1 John chapter 4 and verse 4. Little children, you are from God and have overcome them. For he who is in you is greater than he who is in the world. Over and over and over again are the assurances of, in Scripture that, that God helps us in the face of temptation. We pray, our Father which art in heaven, a reminder of the relationship, of the love relationship that we have with God. We pray your name, your kingdom, your will. God is our first priority. The things of God, his name, his kingdom, his will, all of them holy are our are, are, are priorities. Then Jesus places on our lips the prayers of our material needs, of our spiritual needs, of of our moral struggles, the, the, the strength to endure the moral struggles in this world. Three petitions that remind us that everything in our life is lived in dependence upon God. And the assurances that he does care for our daily needs, the assurances that he does forgive us, the assurances that he will make us overcomers of the evil in this world. The Lord's Prayer, my brothers and sisters, is not just a prayer that is part of formality within the worship service. It is instruction into every aspect of our relationship with God. 
the God that is personal, the God that loves you, the God that saves you. Praying it with an engaged mind, praying the Lord's Prayer with an engaged mind will radically alter your life. Because as you engage your mind with this prayer, as you engage your heart with this prayer, you will be instructed that God is first, that God is best, that God is worthy. You'll be reminded that God loves you enough to provide for your needs, that God loves you enough to forgive you, that God loves you enough to give you the strength to overcome the difficulties in your life. As we pray this prayer, whether in church or in private, I want to encourage you from this point forward, never just let it be something you jump into and say it and then be off with your day. But I want to encourage you to pause and to think about how the Lord is instructing us through this prayer and let this prayer change your life. Lord Jesus, we thank you so much for giving us this prayer, this prayer that, that teaches us so much about our relationship with our Heavenly Father. God, we want to have a relationship with our Father. Jesus, we want to have a relationship with our Father as you do. We want to talk to him as, as we were talking to a friend. Yes, he's mighty and he's powerful and we're in awe of his holiness. But you have invited us to come to him and to speak to him, to address him as our loving father. Lord, I pray that we will not pray the Lord's Prayer again in the future with empty minds or empty thoughts, but we will pause to reflect on the meaning of this prayer, on the value of this prayer, and how this prayer teaches us and guides us in every aspect of our relationship with you. Bless us now, Jesus, in your name. Amen.